We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. These words you probably know are from the Declaration of Independence. They're among the most famous and most inspiring words in American history. They represent the ideal of human government, that it would treat people impartially, without respect to class, without respect to background, without respect to ethnicity. These universal human rights stem from their basis in the truth of Genesis 1, that God has made all people in his image, and therefore all people have inherent dignity and value. Well, 11 years after the Declaration of Independence, delegates met in the same building, Independence Hall in Philadelphia, for the Constitutional Convention. They intended to revise the old system of government known as the Articles of Confederation, but instead of revising the old, they ended up coming up with an entire new system, known as the United States Constitution. Now, the United States Constitution is among the most brilliant pieces of government ever written. Yet it has one glaring contradiction to the impartial treatment of people that the Declaration of Independence called for. You may know it as the three-fifths compromise. The framers of the Constitution had to determine how they were going to count populations in each state. So they could figure out how many representatives each state would get, and they could figure out how to levy taxes in each state. They had to know the number of people who lived in each one. Now the question was, how do you count slaves? There was a debate. Some delegates said to count slaves. They, did, they didn't say this necessarily for good reasons, but often for self-serving reasons. Others said not to count slaves because they weren't people, they were property. But they compromised and settled on counting three out of every five slaves as people. Thus the three-fifths compromise. One of the ways African Americans came to gain full rights as people, not just as property, was by pointing out the contradiction between the United States' founding principle and it, what it did in practice. So one example, Benjamin Banneker, a black writer, scientist, and farmer, he wrote to Thomas Jefferson in 1791. He said to Jefferson, in detaining by fraud and violence so numerous a part of my brethren under groaning captivity and cruel oppression, you should at this time be found guilty of that most criminal act, which you most professedly detested in others with respect to yourself. Our actions can undermine the message we claim to believe. We can claim to have one set of values, but practice another one. For the United States, their treatment of people undermined what they claimed to believe about people. Thankfully, this is something that the United States has recognized over time, albeit slowly, and albeit that there is still room for growth. But this passage of James that we're dealing with today deals with a similar theme. Our actions can undermine our message. Specifically, our treatment of people can undermine our message. Join me in reading James chapter 2, verses 1 to 13. If you're using a Bible that's in the pew rack in front of you, you'll find it on page 1011. Been on that same page for a couple weeks now. Page 1011, James chapter 2, 
beginning in verse 1. You can follow along as I read. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing, saying, you sit here in a good place, why you say to the poor man, you stand over there, or sit down at my feet. Have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. Whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery, but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. This is the word of the Lord. This is our fourth week in the letter of James. You'll remember that James, the half-brother of Jesus, writes to Christians enduring trials. But also, he writes about how they have a variety of areas in their lives that are inconsistent with what they say that they believe. So James calls for a wholehearted devotion to the Lord, a devotion that overflows into every area of their lives, including, as we see today, the area of how we treat people. So the main point for our time, friends, is simple. Follow your king by loving and valuing people the way that he does, not the way the world does. Follow your king by loving and valuing people the way that he does, not the way that the world does. James presents this issue to them in a negative way. He tells them, don't do something. Tells them the things that they shouldn't be doing, and then he gives a real-life example of what it looks like that they are doing. This is verses 1 to 4. And he goes on in the rest of the passage to give what I see as three reasons for why they shouldn't be doing what they're doing. So you break it down like this. There's the main problem, verses 1 to 4, and the rest of it is three reasons why this problem is a bad thing. Now we're going to trace James's case as he presents it. So four points, main problem, main thing they're doing wrong, three reasons why it's wrong, why they shouldn't be doing it. It's my prayer today that God would lead us by his word, not just to recognize behavior that contradicts the gospel, but also to build us up in a lifestyle and behavior that commends the gospel. All right, so the first point, the main problem. Now, in your mind's eye, picture that it's next Sunday already, which might be a good thing for you because that means the sermon will be over already. <laughs> well, just bear with me for a second. 
It's next Sunday. The Lord's brought us through another week. And now you wake up Sunday morning to gather with the Lord's people at Old Oak Bible Church. And everything about the morning is pretty typical. You know, typical breakfasts, typical morning routine, typical traffic. And you pull into the parking lot and you even get the same spot that you always get. You walk into the lobby, you see the same faces, familiar ones. And then it's around 10.15. Service is sort of getting ready to start. We're working on that. And what has been anything but typical turns into unusual very quickly as you see a Rolls Royce pull into the parking lot. <laughs> Catches your eye immediately. And then a figure walks out of this Rolls Royce and you can't tell, but you think as he approaches, I recognize this guy. Is that Baker Mayfield? <laughs> The quarterback of the Cleveland Browns? Is he sporting his $30,000 gold watch that he wore on the cover of GQ magazine this past week? Oh, you get excited. Baker's coming to church. This is unusual, anything but typical. But then you see another fellow approaching the church doors. He didn't drive here. He walked here. And you recognize this guy as well. He's the guy who you see panhandling every day at your 480 exit. <laughs> and he has his shopping cart full of things. He parks it right outside the church doors. Now, in your heart of hearts, which one of those two individuals would you be more excited to see at church? <laughs> now, you can fill in different characters uh, the kind of person that would turn your head in a good way and the kind of person that would turn your head in a bad way. But this is the kind of scenario that James paints for his readers. It's a scenario that highlights what they were doing, showing partiality. That is, giving preferential treatment to certain kinds of people. He says, pay attention to them. It literally means to show special respect for so, so to give preferential treatment to certain kinds of people while treating other people with indifference or disdain. You see that phrase there, you sit here at my feet. This kind of partiality, it's not limited to how we treat people who walk into church. We can apply it to all of our relationships at church and we can apply it to all of our relationships in general. And this problem of partiality has shown up throughout the church's history. It, friends, it lurks today. We see it in the Bible itself. We see it between how people treated Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians who are in the same church. You may remember from the book of Galatians, Paul had to confront Peter for eating only with Jewish Christians. Paul was saying to Peter, Peter, this communicates to people that there is some higher standard of belonging in the church than the blood of Jesus Christ. It's partiality. Partiality, unfortunately, friends, has marked the history of the church. We talked about it some in the introduction. There's been impartial treatment toward those who have different colors of skin. There's been impartial treatment, preferential treatment, toward those who have money. Friends, we, don't, we can find examples today of how money still talks. There, it's not so recent church history that rich members of a church would buy seats in a pew and have their names engraved there. They must not have read James 2. Well, showing partiality, it doesn't have to come 
in these glaring ways, in these glaringly obvious ways. I think when we unearth what's at the heart of partiality, we could see that it still threatens us today. So James highlights their problem right away, but after giving his scenario, he tells them what the problem shows about who they are. So notice with me verse 4 again. After this scenario, preferential treatment to one at the expense of another, he says, Have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? You see that word, made distinctions. It also means to doubt or to waver. It's actually the same word James used back in chapter 1, verse 6, where he says, Let him ask in faith with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea, tossed and driven by the wind. It was there that James didn't want his readers to go back and forth with their devotion to the Lord. He didn't want them to be double-minded or divided. I think he's using the word in the same way here. He's already established precedent. So I think he's saying here that the problem of partiality, treating rich people differently than they treat poor people, shows divisions in their heart. The division between how they treat certain kinds of people shows that they are divided between being devoted to the Lord and being devoted to the world and to themselves. That's what this problem shows about them. It shows something deeper. He goes on, he says, the problem of partiality shows also that they are attempting to take God's place to stand in judgment over others. And they do so with sinful standards, standards of the outward value a supposed person has. So here's James, going deeper again, deeper than just outward behavior to their hearts. Their outward actions showed their hearts that have divided loyalties and sinful and worldly standards. Now, friends, maybe the problem of partiality won't show up in the glaring ways that it has throughout church history. Although we do have to say today The problem of partiality does still show up in some glaring ways. There are people who profess to be Christians who are white supremacists. But even though, even if the glaring ways don't show up here, I wonder if our treatment of people can be from hearts that are divided. Divided from trying to serve the Lord and trying to serve ourselves at the same time. We can think of it like this. Ask ourselves questions. Who are the people I naturally avoid? Who are the people I naturally avoid and why? Another question. Who are the people I most easily criticize and why? Who are the people I most naturally gravitate toward and warm up to? Why? Now, Just to be clear, it's not wrong to be closer to some people than we are to others. It's not wrong to have natural bonds with some people more than others. But there can be selfish reasons for choosing what people we avoid and choosing what people we gravitate toward. Don't we avoid and undervalue people who, as best as we can tell, can't do anything for us and will take a lot of work to love? Don't we naturally gravitate toward 
those who, as far as we can tell, can benefit us in some way, who are easy to be around. And by being with them, we'll feel included and accepted by everyone. So friends, our relationships, including those here at church, can't be all about what we get out of it. Just can't. If they are, we will end up showing partiality. We will value some more than we do others. And James says that treating people with partiality is incompatible with holding faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's incompatible. When we treat people with partiality, we attempt to make ourselves Lord alongside Jesus, replacing his standards with our standards. So friends, here's the problem. Fawning over some people and leaving others behind. This is partiality, and it comes from a heart that elevates people, based, that evaluates people based on outward standards and a heart that wants to serve its own interests. Here's the problem. Now, why shouldn't we do this? Hopefully, it's coming to be obvious already. But James continues. James gives three reasons why this problem is a problem. And in so doing, he's going to show us a more excellent way. So reason number one, partiality is wrong. Partiality is wrong because it's not how God sees people. It isn't how God sees people. Now, up to this point, most of what we've said, I think the majority of people in Western culture would, would agree with, right? It's just uh, uh, affirm the general sentiment of what we're saying. You know, treat people equally. Don't evaluate people based on outward standards. Don't judge a book by its cover. Most people would agree with that, and that's a good thing. Now, while these are good things, they stand on hollow ground if you remove God and the gospel as a basis, they stand on hollow ground. If you think about it, friends, if you, if you take everything away, strip everything down, if we are just sacks of meat with chemicals firing in our heads, and that's it, then why shouldn't we be self-serving? Why should we value others as society calls us to? If we are just accidents, barreling toward nothingness, with no apparent purpose or accountability, why does the impartial treatment of people matter? We may tell people what we think is right, but we cannot tell people anything that they should do if that's all that there is. So when James points out this problem, being consumed with ourselves, trying to serve ourselves and therefore show partiality, what does he do next? Well, next he shows us the heart of God. He shows us the heart of God in the gospel. He says in verse 5, Look at it with me. It says, listen, my beloved brothers. Has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs to the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? What's James saying here? He's saying that people do not belong to God because they are rich. People do not belong to God because they have achieved it or earned it in some way. People belong to God because God has chosen them. And among the people God has chosen are poor people. So here then, friends, is James's logic. 
He says, if God has saved poor people and promised to bring them into his kingdom, then why don't you treat them the way God treats them? Don't you see that God's love is so much greater than our love? That God doesn't have the same motivations. He doesn't have the same needs as we do. He has no partiality. He cannot be bribed. God doesn't think, oh, if only this influential person would accept me, you know, then my cause would be getting somewhere. Friends, neither does God think, oh, that person could never do anything for me, so I'm not even going to bother. No partiality, no needs. God is perfect. God doesn't need anyone. God's not impressed by anyone. So the reason that he loves us isn't because we've earned it. It's because he's chosen to do it. So by treating rich people differently than poor people, they showed that their values were not God's values. So here's what James is doing. He's lifting their eyes off of their own agenda and shows them God's heart. James lifts their eyes off of valuing worldly materials and shows them true riches. Spiritual blessings far beyond compare to anything here what will last for eternity and not go away as soon as we're gone. Friends, if we want to understand how God loves, God's impartial love, if we want to understand that his love is different from our love, his values are different from our values, look no further than Jesus. Look no further. Jesus, the image of the invisible God, God the Son incarnate, the Lord of glory. And Jesus hung out with everybody. He hung out with the influential of his day. He was like Roman centurions. He talked to the religious and the self-righteous. You read the extended conversations he had with them, with Pharisees like Nicodemus. Jesus talked to those who were rich, even those who got rich in really shady ways, like Levi the tax collector or Zacchaeus the tax collector. But you know what really caught the attention of the people around him? was Jesus was willing to be with people who no one else wanted to be with. Jesus was willing to be with prostitutes. Jesus was willing to be with lepers, unclean people. He was willing to be with tax collectors. He was willing to be with the poor. Jesus has God's love, God's love incarnate, taken on flesh, it's impartial. And don't just think of who Jesus hung out with. Now think of Jesus himself. Jesus didn't just hang out with the poor. Jesus himself was poor. He is the Lord of glory who became poor. His, Mary and Joseph were poor. They lived in Podunk, Nazareth. And James would have known firsthand how poor he was. And during his ministry, Jesus didn't have a home of his own. Jesus didn't come to be served. Jesus came to serve, to give his life a ransom for many. So here's God's love, God's impartial love. Friend, that God does not have partiality and is not impressed with our riches and our achievements is because we can never achieve enough to live up to the Lord of glory. We could never do that. But the good news, the good news is that the Lord of glory became man. 
He lived perfectly with the kind of love that the Father has. And he died in our place so that God can accept us and forgive us. So, friends, stop trusting in what you have. Be it material riches, be it moral riches, how good of a person you are. Stop trusting in that and trust in Jesus. The greatest gift, whether rich or poor, it doesn't matter. Jesus is the only righteous one, the only one who loved with perfect love. And he died in our place. Brothers and sisters, fellow believers in Jesus, let's display our faith in this God of love, this Jesus of impartial love, not just in our doctrine, not just in our statement of faith. Let's display it with our entire lives. One way we can display this, this kind of impartial love, that it's actually impacted us and we've received it, is by getting to know and caring for people who have no apparent social benefit to us. In other words, people who, as far as we can tell, can't really do anything for us. Those who are awkward to be around. Those who we naturally avoid. We asked that earlier. You know, friends, God is glorified. You hear me out. God is glorified by awkward conversations. God is glorified by awkward conversations at church. Now, I'm not talking about trying to make people uncomfortable, okay? I'm talking about reaching out to those that it takes an extra effort to reach out to. God is glorified by that. Three years in application today, before you leave, have an awkward conversation with someone. <laughs> you got to start somewhere. You got to start somewhere with impartial love. And we don't have to worry about the social benefit that conversation might give us. Why do we have to worry about social benefit? Jesus has died for us. It's over. It's complete. We don't have to worry about any, that anymore. We're free. So when we continue to care for, hang around people who love Jesus and have no apparent social benefit to us, then we'll get far greater benefits than we know. Friends, then we will see the power of God's glory being displayed through weak people. Far greater benefit than we ever would have designed by ourselves. Listen to the experience of John Bunyan, the author of Pilgrim's Progress. He took a chance and did this. God was kind of forced to do this. Hang around people he wouldn't naturally hang around with. He says, The good providence of God brought me to Bedford for work. And walking down the street one day, I met three or four poor women sitting in a doorway, talking about the things of God. I drew near to listen, being a pretty good talker on religion myself. But they were far out of my reach. Their talk was a new birth, the work of God in their hearts and their tragic condition in themselves. They talked about how God had visited their souls with his love in the Lord Jesus and how they had been refreshed, comforted, and supported. And it seemed that joy itself made them speak. They seemed to me to have found a new world. So I often made it my business to go visit those poor people, for I couldn't stay away. Let's be those friends who are attracted to people, who gravitate toward people, not because of the outward value that we perceive that they have, but because they are valued and loved by the Lord, and they love the Lord themselves, especially here at church. That's when we won't be able to stay away. 
another way. I think we can display our faith in Jesus, this one who loved impartially, not just in our statement of faith, but in actually how we live. Another way we can do that, to have the heart that he does, is to pray a really bold prayer. Is to pray that God would send us people that the world doesn't want. God would send us people that the world doesn't want and the world doesn't value. That's the kind of prayer that our Lord would pray. That God would place them in our path and give us a heart for them, an impartial heart of love for them. Value people as God values people. There are two more reasons, but they are shorter, I promise. Uh, The big problem is people are treating people with partiality, showing that their devotion to the Lord is divided. They have worldly, self-serving values. And this is wrong, we said, because it isn't how God sees people. And this isn't the heart that the Lord has. And James gives another reason. He says partiality is wrong because it will cause us to compromise. Partiality is wrong because it will cause us to compromise. Look with me at verses 6 and 7. It says, But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you? And the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? There's something you should know about first century Middle East. We can see a little bit of the background here. There were just a few landowners and merchants, and they continued to obtain more and more land and power. They forced large numbers of people from their land, making them even more powerful. And it gets worse. These rich people used their influence in courts to secure verdicts favorable to themselves. They'd use tactics like high interest rates to force people off of their land. Their situation is not much different than what goes on in the world today, still. On top of it all, while rich people weren't the only ones to do this, these rich people here were among those who scolded Christians. In that day, Christians were often derided for their claims about who Jesus is and for their practices like the Lord's Supper and baptism. Now, that's the background of what's going on here. A careless reading of these verses could lead us to summarize what James is saying by saying, you know, you guys are treating all the rich people well and the poor people poorly. You guys need to start doing the opposite. Treat poor people well and rich people poorly. That's not what James is saying. Remember, he's calling for impartial treatment, equal treatment, to love both the poor and the rich. Well, it's not a sin to have wealth. Just ask Abraham or Job or Joseph of Arimathea. But wealth can turn into something we trust in and rely on and value more than we do the Lord. It becomes a substitute for God, an obstacle. So it's not that they shouldn't love wealthy people is that they shouldn't dote on them at the expense of poor people. Now, a big reason that they would have done this, we've considered already. They hoped that these rich people could do something for them. So here's the warning from James. If you are willing to go to any lengths to gain favor from these rich people, you'll end up compromising your faith. Now, let's just try to empathize, put ourselves in their shoes just a little bit. Try to understand why they might do this. Now, if they were themselves not rich and oppressed, they, you would think, for the sake of me, for the sake of my family, 
I'm going to try to take advantage of any opportunity I can get to get out of the situation. Even if it takes sucking up to rich people. Even if it takes trying to butter them up so that they will treat me well. I'm trying to empathize with them a little bit here. But the problem is that they didn't think that through. They didn't think those actions through. By doing that, all they're caring about is themselves. And subsequently, the poor people who really need help are left behind and ignored. And they make a fool of themselves in so doing because the ones they're trying to flatter are the ones who have no respect for them, who have no respect for the Lord. So I think, friends, to put what James is telling them to do in our terms, he's telling them, don't be a sellout. Don't be a sellout. When we have selfish and worldly principles and values instead of the Lord's priorities and values, we will end up doing anything to gain favor from the Lord. We'll sell out. That's a divided devotion, trying to serve the world and ourselves and trying to serve the Lord at the same time. You can't do it. You will sell out. I think of the example of Demas. Paul's friend, Paul talks about Demas at the end of 2 Timothy chapter 4. He says, Demas, Demas left me. Demas forsook me. Why? He says, because Demas was in love with this present world. We can't try to gain favor from the world and serve Jesus at the same time. When Christians are willing to bend in any way to be accepted by the world, they will end up compromising their faith. When Christians are willing to bend in any way in hopes to be among the powerful of the world, they will end up compromising their faith. A good example of how foolish this is, think of Esau selling his birthright like that for a pot of stew. So, friends, why do you want, why do we want favor from the world that is so opposed to our Lord Jesus Christ that it crucified him. Why do we want favor from that world? Friends, we don't need approval from the world. We don't need power from the world when the God of the universe loves us, died for us, and has promised us that we will reign with him forever and ever. When we have that, what else do we need? Reason number three. Reason number three, treating people with partiality, favoring some at the expense of others is wrong. Reason number three, is it because it violates the kingdom law of love? It violates the kingdom law of love. Look with me at verses 8 to 13. If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For the judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. 
mercy triumphs over judgment. Now, James packs his argument here pretty tightly. So you see, look at verses 8 and 9. He makes his points by contrasting two different if-then statements. You see that? And he bases that point he makes in verses 8 and 9 on the truths he lays out in verses 10 and 11. And then at the end, in verses 12 to 13, he reiterates not to show partiality as he closes out. So you try to summarize what James is saying on our own, okay? He says, favoring some at the expense of others is not loving your neighbor as yourself. In turn, doing that, favoring some at the expense of others, makes us transgressors, not just of one law, but the entire law. Because God stands behind the entire law. So you can't say, you know, we're doing really well in one area, but we're kind of struggling in a whole bunch, uh, in another one. That's like being charged for murder and in your defense saying, well, I never committed adultery. The bigger deal, James is saying, than violating the rule is disobeying the person behind the rule. And in this case, that's God himself. And to close, James says, show that Christ is in you through your merciful actions that are in line with how he has called you to live. That's sort of the summary of the gist of everything that James is saying. I don't want to get too lost in detail. You can go deeper on two parts of this that I think will help us. Okay, the first part might be a little harder to understand is when he uses that phrase royal law in verse 8. So what's he talking about there? That word royal is closely related to the word kingdom he used back in verse 6. This suggests that the law James has in mind is the one that belongs to the kingdom of God. Now, remember that the law that Jesus quoted the most was the one that James talks about here, summing up all that how God wants us to treat others. Love your neighbor as yourself. So Jesus, the king, fulfilled this law. He kept this law perfectly in our place. But he places this law front and center for his followers. Remember the two most important that he said. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your strength, all your mind, with all your soul, and love your neighbor as yourself. He puts this law front and center. Our king wants us to love people. That's the royal law. And the second part might be a little bit harder to understand, so we'll go just a little bit deeper, is verses 12 to 13. So you see here, if something is judging us, the law judges us, and it exposes our obedience to the Lord, whether or not we have obeyed him. And our obedience to the Lord, friends, is the evidence that he has saved us in the first place, that we have received his mercy in the first place. So we show whether or not we have truly gripped the gospel when we show mercy ourselves. James is going to talk about that more next week in the passage we'll consider. So friends, those who don't show mercy are those who haven't received mercy in the first place, who haven't embraced mercy in the first place. Those who have truly grasped God's mercy in Christ in turn show mercy to others, this kind of impartial love. And James's readers, he is saying, are not displaying that they have really received God's mercy in Christ. And he's warning them. Your behavior shows 
that you haven't really received this. So, brothers and sisters, our king is the king of love and mercy, the one who died in our place. When he is our hope, when he is our treasure, when he's our longing, we won't seek after what the world has to offer. As Isaac Watts says, that we're a treasure far too small. So when we will, when we veer off into treating people in a way that's selfish, in a way that only concerns how we will advance our cause, what do we do? We just try harder. No. Look to your king again. See the king of glory and his love and mercy at the cross. And brothers and sisters, love the way your king loves. Let's pray. Lord, where do we begin with where we fall short in this? God, what James calls his readers to, what James calls us to, what you call us to, shows us how inadequate we are. You do not love in the way that you call us to love. God, we need new hearts. Continue to give us new hearts. Continue to lift our eyes to look at Jesus, the one who loved perfectly. And would your love and mercy display to us through him, fill our hearts so much that we love others the way you love us. We pray this for your glory, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.